we never see an ancient dance of give and take from B to B. Thousands all born from one royal mother singing secret songs to each other. It's a symphony of wings in a thousand different keys. Mysterious and wonderful, the secret life of bees. She's there when they depart up to meet the sunlight as the day's about to start bee after bee beside his brother lifted by the wings of one another Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 23rd, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play, God Shows Up, is now in performance at the Actors Temple Theater on 47th Street. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning, and welcome back from your travels. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Okay. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start off with Peter got a chance to see The Secret Life of Bees, which has just extended, and there's a, I, I, I hesitate to say it's very buzzy around town. <laughs> so, Peter, tell us about The Secret Life of Bees. Well, it deserves to have the buzz. Uh, what's really impressive is that um, Lynn Nottage has done this. Now, Lynn Nottage, of course, is an esteemed playwright, and um, many of us are crazy about her uh, and her achievements. Certainly two Pulitzer Prizes uh, indicate that as well. 
However, you know, when a playwright takes on a musical, that doesn't always mean that the playwright is going to be successful. Mm. Lillian Hellman, Candide, um, <laughs> uh, really, um, Edward Albee came in to rescue breakfast. Tiffany's, he couldn't. Um, Pro Buck uh, did Christine, which lasted two weeks. And Eric Siegel, who did Love Story, um, did a musical called Home Sweet Home that we can't say closed on opening night because it opened on a Sunday afternoon. So um, it, it ran one performance uh, in the afternoon. So <clears throat> you can't just assume that if a playwright is wonderful, that the playwright is going to do a good job with a musical. But Lynn Nottage certainly has here with The Secret Life of Bees. Now, many people will say, well, yeah, yeah, but she had a novel to go to and, and a screenplay to go to. Well, uh, so did a lot of the people I just mentioned have at least novels and, and um, the occasional screenplay as well. Uh, maybe Eric Siegel had a tough time because Home Sweet Home was the Odyssey, a, a poem. But still, um, it's not as easy as it looks, even when you have a novel in the screenplay. And what, um, So I read the novel. I watched the movie. And I have to say that Lynn Nottage did some very, very clever things in giving us information sooner rather than later, which I think helps the musical. And more to the point, has eliminated two difficult door scenes um, – and events, for that matter, that appear in both the movie and uh, the book. So I think she did a splendid job, a splendid job in, in adapting this. And um, now you might say, well, it's a little more sentimental than the novel and the screenplay. Well, Miss Nottage, I understand the reason why you're sentimental. And so am I, because really a musical, um, of course, we have serious musicals and certainly we have musicals with unhappy endings. But given that this is a story of a girl who is desperate to find out if her mother loved her enough to take her with her when leaving her father. And given that this is a story of a girl who accidentally killed her mother when uh, a gun came out on the scene when the father and the mother were fighting and the kid, uh, a little infant, really not much more than that, didn't know what a gun was and pulled the trigger and it killed her mother. I mean, that's serious stuff. So as a result, um, there's only so much tragedy that we can take. And Lynn Nottage knows that and has made it very effective in doing what needs to be done in the story of the girl. But tangentially, there are two other characters who have uh, unfortunate endings in the um, novel and the movie. And uh, that doesn't quite happen here, which is, I think is all to the good. So I think it's really quite wonderful. Now, of course, you're going to have to have somebody wonderful to play the girl. And they had no problem here. Sam Gold really found somebody wonderful, a girl named Elizabeth Teeter, who is so moving in every scene that she's in. Uh, she is just beyond belief in being wonderful. So um, it's a terrific performance. And, of course, it's very, 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 very early in the season. But I dare say she's going to be remembered at award time because this is an award-worthy performance. So that's really quite good, too. All right, so what happens to the girl? She runs away with her... Um, her, the, the maid of the house, um, Rosalina, a black woman, who got into trouble because she wanted to vote. And uh, we're in the Deep South here, and uh, there's certainly men who think that uh, she shouldn't vote. It's 1965, and, um, and Lyndon Johnson has passed the Civil Rights Act, but um, <laughs> a lot of people down there don't want the blacks to have civil rights. So she um, rebels a bit. And uh, the way she rebels, by the way, I think is clearer in the novel and the screenplay. So I wish that Sam Gold would take a look at that and make it very clear what's going on there. I don't think it was staged well enough. But 
anyway, uh, that's why they have to get out of town fast um, because uh, Rosaline, the maid, uh, gets into trouble. But as I say, it's a case where uh, Lily, uh, the young girl, wants to find out this information. So she's going to go and find people that her mother may have lived with. And um, and on the way, she runs into other people. Now, she runs into a group of people who uh, live together. They're all sisters, and they were named after months of the year. There's August, there's June, and there's May. Sorry to say April died, and that's part of the story as well. But August is the one who's the beekeeper. She's the one who um, teaches uh, Lily all about how to deal with bees. And it's really a wonderful moment when she says, you're a natural at this. And Lily, for the first time in her life, gets a compliment. Uh, It's never happened before from her father because her father really is a terrible human being. Terrible human being. In, In fact, he's devised a punishment that I don't know how it would have occurred to anybody, but it's really quite hard. And it takes its toll on her body. At the beginning of the show, we see the part of her body that is tortured by her father. And as the show goes on, we see that those marks inflicted by her father, and I know you're thinking marks what it must be, but it's not quite what you're thinking. Anyway, um, the marks inflicted by her father fade a a bit by bit by bit. And it really is a nice metaphor for how she's really improving, how she's really being cured, how she's coming into her own. So it's a wonderfully sentimental story. And um, tears will come into your eyes at the end of it, especially because the performances are so good. Uh, A very, very fine performance by Lashans, whom we've loved for a long, long time since Once on this Island, uh, who is playing uh, August. She really does a wonderful, wonderful job um, in being the the person who needs to be the rock of the family because um, her other two sisters really wouldn't be able to do it. Now, there is some conflict with the fact that... um, June, uh, August's sister, is not crazy about taking in this white girl. Uh, no, that's, I, I guess I did make it clear that uh, we're dealing with a black family here, but um, not happy at all that this is happening. Um, and um, there's, there's a subplot as well of June being involved with uh, a man who's um, not being involved, really. Uh, he's in, he wants her so badly, and she wants none of him. Now, in the book... She is stalwart about this. But on stage, Isa Davis, E-I-S-A Davis, does a wonderful job of showing us that, well, maybe she's more interested than she wants to let on. Maybe the problem is that she doesn't know how to proceed with a man. And she fears that any show of affection will make her come across as a jackass. So, uh, But they, um, she and um, August go really do battle over whether or not uh, Lily and Rosaline should be taken in. And believe me, they have a duet, which will never be confused with Bosom Buddies. I mean, it's it's far more serious than that. So, also, there's a character named Zachary Taylor. Not the president, no. Um, but a young man, a, a young black man, whom, to whom Lily takes a shine. And um, there's a lot of come back, go away, I love you uh, stuff going on between them, which really does underline the fact that wasn't easy to be uh, interested in a person of a different race way back in the 60s down south. So um, Duncan Sheik wrote the music, and this is a score that really sounds like the the time it's supposed to be in, and um, it's right for the the um, locale, which hasn't always been the case with Duncan Sheik's music. Um, so a very fine score. 
um, lots of spirituals, lots of rave ups, um, lots of um, folky type stuff that's really good. And he's working with a lyricist who, who knows how to rhyme. So Susan Birkenhead does a very nice job with lyrics. Very nice indeed. Knows how to really create character in those lyrics. So this is a very successful effort all around. It's at the Atlantic Theatre Company. It has been extended. Uh, I hope we see more of it. I think we deserve to. Uh, Atlantic is where Spring Awakening started, Duncan Cheek's first musical, and uh, certainly that went on. And it's had great success with other shows as well. So here's hoping this is going to be yet another one that wins its way to Broadway and does well at awards time. All right. Uh, Michael is going to see Secret Life of Bees in a few weeks, and we'll get his uh, view on it then. Uh, yeah, and, and just to say that, uh, you know, I really think that Duncan Cheek is becoming um, – one of our best uh, musical theater composers, even even uh, when the show overall is not uh, hit, like Alice by Heart, mm-hmm. I, I always I, I always really like his work, and I love Spring Awakening. You know, I always have, and uh, he's sort of I think maybe relatively under the radar. Um, I, I mean, not quite, but I, I don't think he gets as much attention uh, necessarily as some of the other. Uh, up-and-coming musical theater composers. Uh, but I really, uh, I whenever I see his name associated with something, I'm always looking forward to it. Peter, I regret that when we uh, started this review of Secret Life of Bees, I didn't say, what's the buzz? Tell us what's happening. Uh, <laughs> well, you said it now, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Through the miracle of editing. No, um... Uh-huh. All right, so let's move forward into another review uh, here. Michael, you got uh, a chance to see Transport Group's Sweet Charity. Tell us about that. Oh, yes, they do a annual gala fundraiser for themselves. And uh, last year it was Promises, Promises. Um, and these are wonderful events in this, if only for the fact that they have full orchestras on the stage playing these fabulous scores. Uh, and, you know, of course, we get that at other places like encores. But uh, this is the, at least these two uh, concerts were both done at uh, Merkin Concert Hall, which is a wonderfully intimate uh, space with excellent acoustics. And when you have a 25 piece orchestra on on stage at that place, uh, it's just it's really, really something I um I have seen there was a years ago a, a big gala all-star sweet charity concert event at Avery Fisher Hall uh which uh I I'll never forget uh and that one was you know, that was very different I mean there was a big 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 deal with big stars in it like Cheetah and Donna McKechnie and Gwen Verdon herself uh and it was really amazing um but that one I'll never and oh that one had I'll never forget um Cy Coleman came out at the beginning and and played with the orchestra a, a special overture uh you know that that I guess maybe he had arranged or someone else had arranged but that one negative of that production is that I didn't get to hear the original overture uh, and which is, I think, really one of the best ever written. Uh, you know, people frequently do these lists of what are the greatest Broadway overtures ever written. And sometimes Sweet Charity appears there and sometimes it doesn't. But I think 
it absolutely should. It's it's just a, a marvel of an overture. So that was that was one of the highlights of this event at Merkin. I even if it had just been for that to hear um, the the that orchestra playing those orchestrations by Ralph Burns, which someone made the point of crediting. That was that was really great. Uh, it was really amazing. Um, it wasn't necessarily the most star-studded uh, concert in terms of names, but we had, uh, let's see, we had Lindsay Nicole Chambers, Alicia Umfris, Jessica Lee Golden, Bree Jackson, Julie Klausner, Natalie Toro, John Cariani, Kate Weatherhead, uh, Anne L. Nathan, Paolo Montalban, Rachel Bay Jones, Beth Malone, uh, Matt Castle, Nicograph Lancerone, uh, um, Laura Blackman, Jacob Keith Watson. And then uh, this was really pretty neat. The event was on a Monday night, and um, they brought Santino Fontana in uh, direct from a performance of Tootsie, wow. which I didn't wow. even realize that Tootsie has Monday night performances, but wow. apparently it does, um, at least for the time being. Maybe they have a different schedule for summer. I don't know. Right. Uh, and uh, because he couldn't get there till the end, uh, they they switched the position of the song that he sang, which was Too Many Tomorrows, um, which he sang just, just beautifully. So this was um, a really wonderful event as far as the musical end of it and the casting of the uh, song. Uh, many highlights. Uh, Jessica Lee Golden's If My Friends Could See Me Now was really, really wonderful, and the audience just loved her. Um, there was a negative. Uh, there were two women who narrated uh, two of uh, um, Fosse dancers, ex Fosse dancers, um, and unfortunately, uh, uh, the material they were given was very questionable. And also, one of them was uh, uh, should not have been on stage. To be honest, uh, she just was not prepared. But um, <laughs> that was unfortunate. But that's not why we came, and it it really was just great to hear one of this one of the one of the great scores. Uh, it's been mentioned that. Um, when Sweet Charity opened, it, you know, it was very well received, but I think many people perceived it as a vehicle for Gwen Verdon, and many people doubted that it would have any life beyond her. Uh, but it, it pretty soon proved that it did, uh, you know, with uh, Julia Prowse and Cheetah Rivera uh, in London and on tour. And uh, then, of course, the movie, uh, although the movie was a was a, a flop at the time with Shirley MacLaine, it, I think, has... Uh, I think it has stood the test of time pretty well. And of course, we've had um, one one Broadway revival, one off-Broadway revival, and the show is constantly done. So I think that what in cycle... Fact we, in fact, we've had two, Michael. Two, two Broadway revivals, because Debbie Allen did one and then Christine Applegate. Of course, thank you. I Yeah, I did, I, as soon as I said that, it didn't sound right. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Your point is so well taken, though, here about nobody thought the charity would last um, yeah. nearly as long. It was not the biggest of the season by any stretch of any imagination. Certainly, Mandela La Mancha and Mame outran it. It certainly was the, the also ran that year, even though it ran 600, I think, eight performances. It, it, it really is amazing how this thing will not die. Right. And, you know, what's also neat about it, they um, 
uh, during this uh, event, they played uh, brief excerpts of, you know, Peter, there's those um, audio excerpts of the opening night interviews from Sweet yeah, 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 that yeah. are that are included on the current, uh, you know, version of the cast album. Sure. And, and of course, I, and I was reminded, uh, you know, I mean, not that I had forgotten, but that Sweet Charity had reopened the Palace Theater mm. after decades, I believe, of it just sitting there empty. Um, and so, of course, now, given what's now happening with the Palestine. Ah, right, yeah. To hear, the, you know, these people in 1966 talking about that was really, really pretty moving and and uh, captivating. So it, it was it was it was overall really a wonderful evening for the musical and. And I was very glad I was there. Okay. So that is the uh, one-night benefit that, uh, unfortunately, if you weren't there, you won't be able to see it. But I'm glad that Michael was able to bring us back and uh, report on it. Uh, Peter and Michael both got, got to see The Mountains Look Different. So, Peter, why don't you start us off with that? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, this is another winner from the Mint Theater Company. And, again, I don't know how Jonathan Banks Bank is so amazing at finding these plays that nobody finds, uh, that nobody knows about, that nobody could even ostensibly care about. Uh, it just seems so bizarre. Now, this one, usually you find shows that uh, played Broadway uh, 100 years ago. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little, but not a lot. And um, it's really... Not the case this time, because now we're dealing with a play by a British man who uh, seemed to think of himself as an Irishman. Uh, he uh, he changed his name to Michael McLeod Moore. I, uh, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, I expect that I'm pronouncing it wrong. But um, this play was somewhat influenced by Anna Christie, of all things. Uh, Anna Christie is the story of a prostitute who comes to uh, back where she used to uh, live and um, a man falls in love with her, unaware of what goes on. But, but yeah, she and he uh, find a, he finds out the truth and, well, they're going to get married anyway and live happily ever after. Or are they? And that's what Michael um, McLean Moore uh, was interested in. It's so true. So many of the stories we see end with a marriage and it's supposedly um, a wonderfully happy ending. And uh, is it really? That's what he wondered. What happens when the, um, as time goes on? So what we have here is a situation where uh, a, a young man has fallen in love with a woman who indeed does have this sordid past, and he doesn't know it at all. They come back to um, the place where he grew up, and the real surprise here is that his father recognizes her as a person that he and his friends once spent, an, uh, well, uh, if not a night, certainly everybody had a, a fine old time. Now, this is a real complication. And also, you have to understand, this play uh, debuted in 1948. And under those circumstances, imagine what it was like to hear the girl eventually say to the father, yeah, I, I, I was a whore. Um, yeah, that must have been amazing in 1948 to have that word said on stage. And, um, and so what happens after that? Well, 
uh, you could imagine some of it, but I guarantee you won't imagine all of it. Now, of course, we're still in an era where the bad girl has to be punished, and certainly she does get punished. She will get punished. We don't see her ostensibly get punished, but she will get punished for her actions. But, but uh, the way that happens is um, maybe a tiny bit unbelievable, and I, I wouldn't argue with anybody who has a hard time believing it, but still, it's it's a very effective play um, in, in so many ways, and especially when one has a 1948 uh, framework in, uh, in his head. Wonderfully performed. There's an actor new to me named Brenda Meany, who uh, plays, of course, um, the former prostitute, now newlywed, and does it splendidly. Also effective is uh, an actor named Con Horgan, who plays the father. Both of them really uh, create fireworks when they're on the stage, so I really uh, like that. I will say that it's a little bizarre. You, you assume you're dealing with only a few people, and then as time goes on, in march all these townies, and I, I can't say that I really thought that there was much value in having them come in, but that said... Um, they, they do make a, for a nice crowd at the end of the show when uh, the most dramatic thing uh, happens. So, so once again, God bless the Mint Theater Company and um, doing an astonishing performance, um, astonishing production, and um, in a, in a nice in a nice um, set that um, <laughs> this sort of is um, not naturalistic, but. Mm. Um, but does have uh, its 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 charms. So, uh, so I'm all for uh, the Mint Theater Company, and uh, that doesn't stop with this production at all. Michael, what did you think? Yeah, Peter and I agree on every single point about this play and this production. Um, as for the set, uh, it's so interesting. It's by Vicki R. Davis, and I mentioned in my review for Talk and Broadway, uh, which I'll, I'll send you the link. Uh, it, it is. Uh, a lot of her work there, she does a lot of their sets, a lot of their sets. And usually, uh, it seems to me, they're very, very photorealistic. But this one is uh, less so. Uh, you might have thought it would be more so because it's, it's in a way it's a very slice of life, gritty kind mm -hmm. of a play. But I think it actually works beautifully. It, it's um, the first – there are two sets basically. There's the exterior of this farmhouse. Uh, and then and then it sort of folds out. So we see the interior of you know, like the main room of the farmhouse. But um, in, in both cases, and especially the exterior, it's uh, it, it is almost like a, almost a romantic uh, design. Uh, it's certainly not very realistic. And, and I said in my review, of all things, it looks like the, the movie of Brigadoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was very effective because – it starts out and you think, well, maybe this is going to be a certain kind of a play with a certain kind of a tone. And then it gets very, very dark. Um, but so I think that that was that's really good work on the set designers part. Um, the thing about the townies, I had the same reaction as Peter. I, I mean, I, I think the playwright put them there because he wanted a sense of community, uh, you know, and uh whether this woman is going to be accepted or not and how, uh, you know, what happens when, when she's found out. Um, uh, but the thing is they, uh, most of those people, uh, half of the cast doesn't come on until act two. And I felt the plot was kind of tightening at that point And, and it they were almost a distraction in that sense. So I think that that was a, a, a 
relatively minor flaw in the play, but it really is extraordinary. I, th- I believe his name, uh, despite that. Extra yeah. Eye, <laughs> I, no, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's Macklemore. Okay. I, I think so. Cause I heard someone else say it, frankly. In this uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Brenda Meany has, uh, she has done some stuff. You might've seen her in, um, she was in Indian ink at the roundabout. Oh. Uh, she was in Incognito at MTC, and she was in that Party Face show at, um, uh, well, that with with um, Haley Mills. Oh uh, yeah, 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 I remember yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she has done stuff. She, but she was perfectly cast, and everyone in it was just great. And this. Um, uh, we should. I, I want to mention the director because uh, Jonathan Bank, aside from his brilliant artistic direct, directorship, does direct some of the shows also. But this one is by Aiden Redmond, uh, and it's just really, really, really well done. That co- that company is. Um, it's just a treasure. I'm so glad that they they're in residency now. At, oh, by the way, at the uh, at the. Uh, Ex, uh, exceedingly renovated uh, new uh, mm-hmm. theater row. Uh, the uh, the theaters themselves, I don't think, have been changed in any way. But the but pu- the public spaces are have been completely redesigned. Uh, so somebody put a lot of money into that. Uh, uh, so the next time you go, if you've been there before, you don't be disoriented. Uh, <laughs> well, in fact, they made an, an effort to make sure you don't get disoriented because. Uh, we're of mixed feelings about this, all of us, that uh, such names as the Beckett Theater and the Clorman Theater no longer have those names. The theaters are simply called 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 because people got confused as to, oh, wait a minute, where's the Beckett? Uh, am I in the right space? So they thought that uh, for the sake of, ex- sake of expediency that indeed they would simply number the theaters. So that's what's happened. So uh, you may have an easier time of it than you used to. Yes, and they said uh, the rationale was to avoid to avoid confusion, which mm-hmm. I, I didn't I wasn't necessarily aware with, that there was any. But uh, I agree. <laughs> you know what's interesting about that too is if anything it, it's it's the opposite of what you would expect because nowadays with corporate funding etc. Yeah, that's right. Huh? You, yeah. you mm-hmm. might have thought they would have gone, or maybe they maybe they intend to do that at some point uh, to go. The confusion will be much alleviated if it if it becomes the Baskin Robbins Theater, you know, or the Krispy Kreme, you know, coming to Times Square there, you know, um, five five thousand square foot donut shop. Uh, well, kale, anyway, I, I mean, kale pectate. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm, well, yeah, I'm sorry to, that it's no longer the Clerman and the Beckett, but uh, maybe their thought process is well, we'll change it to just theaters one, two, three, four, five, and then. If naming donors come along, uh, you know, we'll be going from that to the new names and it won't be as much of a shock. Kind of what is happening, as we've discussed many times with the Helen Hayes Theater. Yeah, yeah, indeed. indeed. Well, I mean, you know, theaters like Signature, where we have uh, individual names in inside oh. the larger complex. Right, right, uh, right. That. Yeah. Uh, only uh, James. Only uh, Baskin Robbins Theater should be Theater Thirty One. Oh, <laughs> is it a Thirty Two flavors or Thirty One flavors? Thirty One flavors. Thirty One flavors. I thought it was Thirty Two. Ah, you know, if uh, they opened up a Rocky Road Theater, I would be there every night. Oh, they have the a Rocky... chocolate Mandarin sherbet. Uh, oh anyway. yeah. <laughs> oh, ben and Jerry should have a theater. 
Yeah. Yes, that's right. It's amazing that's, they don't. I mean, yeah. if the Snapple Center could have happened at least for a while, well, you know. So. <laughs> oh, I try to remember that. So um, that is The Mountains Look Different at Mim Theater Company. It's playing through July 14th. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Michael, you got over to New York City Opera to see a new opera called Stonewall. Tell us about this. Yes, I was not going to go, to be honest, because I uh, contemporary opera and I don't always get along that well. Um, I just don't generally like the style of music uh, in the vast majority of new operas. Um, so I wasn't going to go, but then actually a friend of mine had an uh, extra ticket because he turned out that he was going to be out of town. So he gave it to me, and I figured I'd go just out of curiosity and for the occasion, uh, you know, since we are coming up to the, the 50th anniversary of Stonewall very, very soon, the Stonewall Uprising. Um, and I was so happy that, that, that it worked out that way because it, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the music is by someone named Ian Bell. And uh, I really don't know much about him, but as I was saying to a friend after, or rather as a friend said to me after the performance, uh, we were both saying how much we liked it, and specifically the music, and my friend said it's, it's very accessible, and then he said, not like... Brokeback Mountain, which was another uh, uh, new opera that City Opera recently did a, a year or so ago. Uh, on, actually, on another gay subject, um, they're becoming a, a very gay company uh, as they attempt to. Uh, it's it's really um, it's really encouraging uh, and and really very praiseworthy how um, they're trying to keep this company going because it basically died several years ago, but they're trying to revive it. And, um, and it seems like they most often perform now in the beautiful Rose theater or Rose hall, uh, in, at the time Warner center. It's, it's, if, if you haven't been there yet, uh, I, I would go see this, you know, even if just to be in the hall, it's, it, 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 it's so beautiful, but, uh, but there's a lot more there than the venue in this case. Um, the, the music, as I said, is very, very dramatic and very acceptable, still uh, accessible, still not my preferred type, uh, a little, a little too spiky for me, but the main point is, is that it really told the story so well in, in, combination with the really brilliant libretto by Mark Campbell. Um, I, it, it struck me after seeing the opera that it was sort of structured in the way of almost a disaster movie. <laughs> and in a way you could you'd see it as a disaster movie. Because you had, we had, what we had was a bunch of vignettes of these various uh, types of gay people uh, right before the Stonewall Uprising. The first thing we saw was a, a lesbian being harassed uh, on the subway and then uh and then she stands up to her uh, aggressor and calls him micro dick uh which does not go over well and then he he hits her uh so that's one thing we saw then we saw a drag queen uh, getting ready to go out on the town we saw a guy uh, a, a closeted gay guy married gay guy from connecticut being uh blackmailed 
over the phone by someone who a guy who he had had a, a, a one nighter with, and all these different very very diverse types. Um, and then we see them come together at the stone wall, and we do see the actual. I mean, it, it's really extraordinary. The actual lead up and and to the raid and the raid itself and how that slowly uh, formed you know formed into a rebellion that then became a historic historic event and uh you know it's i had just seen a a, a documentary on stonewall i may have mentioned this on pbs and i wasn't sure initially when it was done uh because i i could tell it wasn't brand new but i, I wasn't sure it turns out it was from 2011 and they had uh talking heads like ed koch and virginia apuzzo and really uh uh, you know, s- s- people who were actually at the at the uprising uh, and copious uh, historical footage and photos and things like that. And there were three um, uh, there were at least three uh, interesting historical facts in that documentary that were incorporated in this opera. So I think that the librettist Mark Campbell really, really did his research. There were things like three things that stood out to me. There, uh, apparently, the deal was if you were a lesbian in a bar, you had to have um, at least three items of quote unquote women's clothing on. And if you weren't and you, if you did not, then you were subject to being arrested. So they have that that's in here. And then they had um, uh, this is amazing. Uh, in that documentary, there was one of the cops who uh, one was one of the senior officers, maybe the senior officer at the Stonewall Uprising. And when it started to get really, really intense and and very, very uh, when it started to get violent, you know, in terms of the the resistance and the pushback, uh, apparently at one point this uh, this cop said to the others, uh, "If you fire one bullet, you will be walking a beat on Staten Island for the rest of your life." So that's why I mean, as as uh, as incredible and intense and and violent as the uprising was in terms of uh, beating with nightsticks and things of that sort. There, there was no gunfire that I know of, and it could have been a, 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 an incredible, mm. incredible uh, mm. carnage at that. So that's another thing that worked into the opera. And then the final thing that I noticed that was so, uh, so beautiful, um, people have recounted that the night after the first riot, because I think it was three separate nights of, of, of rioting, um, there was so much broken glass in the street around Sheridan Square that as the sun began to come up, uh, you know, the early morning sun, uh, it looked like diamonds on the street. And that line was in here as well. So all of those three things were in this libretto for this excellent opera. It was, uh, the, the audience seemed really riveted and it got a huge reception at the end. Uh, and I, I, I was so happy that City Opera chose to do this, and and it, I hope it uh, I, it's certainly deserving of to be a big success. It, it was quite full, not completely sold out, but um, if you can get there, it, 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 I think it goes through uh, the end of the week, rough or the end of the yeah, I think it goes through at least the end of the week. Um, check it out, and and please try to get there. I think it's it's absolutely absolutely worth it. 
It runs through June 28th. Uh, performances yeah. are mostly at 7.30 p.m., which uh, yes. just be aware of that. Uh, By the way, um, ironically enough, even though I'm from Boston, mm-hmm. I, was, I was in New York. Oh, my God. On Bleecker Street, not far away, that Sunday afternoon. Incredible. At the old Circle in the Square Theater, seeing Little Murders, um, which is an ominous title, considering what might have happened, as Michael pointed out. But, wow, little did I know, uh, when I left the theater around 5 o'clock, what was going to happen a few blocks away uh, that would uh, certainly improve so many lives lives as time goes on. By the way, this uh, Stonewall was directed by Leonard Folia, uh, who has also done theater, including Masterclass, and conducted by an amazing uh, woman, uh, Asian woman, (laughs) uh, Carolyn Kwan, K-U-A-N. So – uh, and the cast, as I mentioned uh, before, the characters and the cast are extremely diverse, and it just – it was so, so, so well done. I, I can't tell you how impressed I am. Michael, you didn't get down to Stonewall to see Taylor Swift, did you? No, uh, but I heard she was there, and I, I remembered that about a year ago, Madonna had performed yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was – wasn't that supposed to be for like the, the unofficial start of the of – the, Celebration. Of the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and, and <laughs> I may have told this story, but um, I happened to be there a few nights later singing um, – upstairs at the Stonewall for a, an open mic thing that a friend of mine had arranged. And uh, I turned to the bartender at one point, and there was nobody there yet. And I said, is that the stage that Madonna just sang on? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of like the cleanup act. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> she opened for you. You can say yeah. Madonna opened for Madonna you. Madonna opened for me. <laughs> yeah. That's how I would phrase it. So you got from the Time Warner Center over to Lincoln Center where you saw the American Songbook Gala. Uh, We talked about it briefly in preview last week. Uh, So how was it after you saw it? Well, you know, it was great for the cast and, again, the orchestra, um, about the same size as as the the one I just mentioned, about 25 pieces conducted by Sondheim specialist Paul Gemignani. And the cast was Kate Baldwin, Donna Murphy, Ashley Park, and special guest Petula Clark, who um, functioned mostly as a host and – well, I won't say narrator because all of the women did a lot of dialogue uh, to more on that in a moment. Um, uh, but Petula, uh, she is a wonder. She really is. And she what they did was they saved her for the end. The only thing she sang was I'm Still Here. Uh, we were speculating on what she might sing. I thought it might be Send in the Clowns. Uh, believe it or not, Send in the Clowns was not in this program. Uh. Which is a little odd, considering it was an evening of of of, of songs that Sondheim wrote, especially you know specifically for women, and it is argu- well, not even arguably, I would say, his most famous song, and happens to be written for a woman, although originally it was written for a man, but that's another story. Um, so she did. Um, I'm still here. And I think in a way it maybe wasn't the best choice because it's a laundry list song and it, it is kind of difficult to remember those lyrics in in the correct order. Um, uh, 
Past Carlottas have famously had problems with that. But Petula did a great job. She stumbled very, very briefly once, but then immediately got it back. And uh, she did sing it in a slightly lower key than, than what's in the score, but just a little bit. And she still has her voice at 87. Wow. And 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 it was great because you don't the way that song is written, you don't get to really hear the voice so much until the end. And and that's when she pulled it out. And we weren't sure, you know, 100 percent sure if it was going to still be there. But she did it and complete with those those high notes at the end. Uh, and I'm here. Look who's here. I'm still here. It sounded absolutely great. So that was amazing. Um, the other women all had their moments to shine. Uh, I would say a lot of the choices were were excellent, some less so. Kate Baldwin did a beautiful version of The Miller's Son, uh, maybe the best I've ever heard. Donna Murphy had lots of highlights, including Rose's Turn, uh, which I think maybe was the only uh, number that did um, music yeah, by yeah, right. yeah. but they they were you know very very uh, you know quick to credit Julie Stein of course uh, and Ashley Park did um, getting married today uh, and she also did um, uh, another hundred people and she also did uh, this uh, into the woods uh, she was she was really given a showcase here and I uh, you know I, I I'm it, she seems to be the flavor of the month in some ways. It was just announced that she's going to be doing the lead in Thoroughly Modern Millie at uh, at City Center at Encores. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I'm not her biggest fan, but I, I think she does have a lot of personality and, and she does have a voice there when she's not um, doing a lot of mannerisms, which she, which she does tend to do. But uh, the audience certainly seemed to love her and, Paul Gemignani and the orchestra. I thought there were some really quick tempos on a couple of the numbers, including another hundred people and actually also the Miller's son. But it was amazing there again to hear uh, an orchestra. Because when you hear an orchestra on stage uh, playing these scores, it, it's a completely different uh, experience than when they're in a pit somewhere because you you get to watch you could see the you know the strings bowing and and it's a more visceral experience and then also I think the the orchestrations just come across more clearly um, but there are there are wonderful wonderful places like for example that um, that section of another hundred people. Uh, where the strings really take over and those tunic orchestrations, they're just so, so gorgeous. Um, you, you can hear that also on the company original cast recording documentary uh, because the the way that uh, documentary is done during that number, various sections of the orchestra are highlighted and, and the, the audio turned up for various sections. So you can hear exactly what I'm talking about in that documentary, if, if you don't know what I mean. Um, so all of that was great as far as the, the musical stuff. Unfortunately, uh, this was, uh, well, it's only billed as directed by Lonnie Price, and I think it's as conceived by him somewhere. It didn't actually bill whoever wrote the copious dialogue, most of which should not have been there, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Believe it or not, it was a lot of insult humor oh. between the women, uh, including age jokes. Wow. Yeah, so I'm, you know, not uh, uh, not the biggest Lonnie Price fan, to put it mildly, and this really did not 
changed my mind as far as that was concerned. Uh, but I'm just glad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the the jokes because they were really pretty bad and embarrassing. But the musical end of it was amazing, and uh, uh, Sondheim was in fact there. Um, and did come up and speak briefly at the end. Uh, you know what? I thought, I thought in a way a golden opportunity was missed, although I don't know how this would have worked logistically. Uh, Sondheim famously delivers the spoken line, you ain't getting 88 cents out of me, Rose, on the original cast album of Gypsy. And I thought, since Donna Murphy did that number, can you imagine if they had brought uh... up? Yeah, that's probably not something that even occurred to Lonnie Price, but I think that would have been amazing, even if maybe somebody had gone into the audience and handed him a mic, (laughs) you know, so he could have said it from there. And yes, you know, it would have stopped the show and we would have had to start again. But I think. Uh (laughs) So, you know, perhaps tomorrow night at Town Hall, Jason Robert Brown and Stephen Sondheim are going to take the stage. Uh, Maybe they can do it there or either one. is that tomorrow? It's tomorrow night. It's Monday night. Uh, I, I think it is. I agree. I agree. Uh, but yeah, Monday, June 24th, 8 p.m., Town Hall. Jason Robert Brown with special guest Stephen Sondheim featuring Katrina Lenk. Could right. you have three more awesome people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wonderful at Town Hall tomorrow night. Maybe he'll uh, do his 88 cents there. Um, let me <laughs> ask the two of you a question. Uh, that I've I've never heard anything about. Uh, do you uh, do you guys know if uh, Stephen Sondheim has ever said anything about Sinatra singing "Send in the Clowns"? I mean, I, it, I can't imagine that Stephen Sondheim and Frank Sinatra were buddies. I don't know, but I, I do know that uh, he, uh, you know, not surprisingly, he would never be inclined to say anything negative yeah. uh, about someone mm-hmm. who you know someone like of that stature who would perform something like that but well, i don't know all, let's also remember that uh, that recording of merrily we roll uh, occurs now in merrily we roll along in the rewritten version you actually hear sinatra's version of sending right. the clowns the one question i always had is um uh in new york new york uh, did fred ebb uh Blanche, the fact that um, the the That's city that doesn't sleep, as opposed to never sleeps, which is uh, with an S on it, and it doesn't rhyme with heap, um, not correctly anyway. And I am I imagine that Fred Ebb wasn't happy about that, but I'm sure Fred Ebb was happy that Sinatra <laughs> recorded that song and frankly <laughs> res- rescued it. Um, right. Yes, uh, there's no question that Liza Minnelli's recording had its admirers, and certainly we thank her for introducing it in the film of the same name, but it was Sinatra who really made that into a standard. But actually, I do know the answer to that. Fred Ebb has gone on record as really disliking the changes that... Uh-huh. <laughs> that uh-huh. Yeah, it's in that I book. didn't know that, yeah. Yeah, no, if nowhere else, it's in that book. Is it called Colored Lights? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's in there, and he—that's uh, not the only thing he changed. Uh, uh-huh. There's that uh, a number one line. Uh-huh. That's, right, right. that's not in the original. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So Fred was not happy with that aspect of it, but as I'm, sh- as you said, I am sure he was delighted with the other aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the New York Yankees use it 160 times a year. 
So, uh, <laughs> 162. Anyway, uh, well, <laughs> no, 80, 81. Think about it. 81. Well, I, yeah, oh, I home was, games. Yeah, right. home games. Home games. Yeah, that's right. right. Home games plus the uh, playoffs. And, uh, well, looks that's like, fair. Looks like, looks good, and yeah. then they uh, use it on the Yes Network all the time. Uh-huh. The Yankees Entertainment and Sports Network. Uh, so, um, oh, you know, can I just go back briefly to Stomo because there was one course. other thing I remembered. Yeah. We, we've sure. been talking all about all about that, and I and I realized it just kind of hit me that another thing that happened right around that time was the New York Mets hmm. winning the World Series. Yeah, sixty nine. Right? I mean, that would, would that have been would that have been May? April? No, uh, no uh, October. Until, yeah, October is when the World Series is. Yeah. So it's. Oh, but even even in those days. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's yeah. always. It's uh, always uh, all right. I, well, this shows you how much I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but anyway, it was still 1969. Yeah. And, oh yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, today I am going to Asbury Park to see a recreation of Judy Garland's famous Carnegie Hall concert uh-huh. with a full orchestra and with Karen Mason and Debbie Gravitt and Gabrielle Stravelli and Lorna Luft and a couple of other uh, art, uh, artists who I'm not familiar with. And, um, you know, we're going to the beach and it's supposed to be a beautiful day. So I thought I should bring a cap. So I'm bringing my Mets cap that I wore when I was on the team that won the tri- the theater trivia contest in Staten Island a few months ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it all comes full circle. You know, we expect no less uh, that you would in the trivia contest. Uh, you had mentioned um, at City Center, Ashley Park, Thoroughly Martin Millie announcement. Uh, uh, a little bit of uh, pushback from the theater community online about doing Millie these days. A- any thoughts about doing Millie these days? Well, apparently they're doing it specifically to try to fix the quote unquote problems and issues uh the the race the race issues uh and so we'll see if that works hmm. i think it's a good idea all right so michael is going to leave us uh, right now because he's as he just mentioned heading to the beach michael yes. so yes, yes. thank you for joining us this morning and we will talk to you next week great thanks guys no you won't We'll are talk we taking next week off. Oh, that's right. We that's are right, taking yeah. next week off. That's right. So you two weeks from now. Do you want to redo that part? No, it's okay. Oh. Right. okay. <laughs> so we'll see you see later, ya. Michael. Bye. Okay, so uh, Peter, you got over to Manhattan Theater Club to see Long Lost. Michael talked about it last week or the week before. So tell us what you thought of it. This is Donald Margulies' new play, and uh, it's just as wonderful as the ones that we've seen in the past, including Dinner with Friends, which certainly uh, was a smart play that uh, got plenty of awards. But this one uh, deals with um, a brother situation, Uh, and it's not an easy time whatsoever for David, who's a successful executive, as we can tell from his office, which is a beautiful set by John Lee Beatty. And it is just the beginning of a number of set surprises by John Lee Beatty in an astonishingly detailed and clever and uh, (laughs) utterly impressive set uh, because we will eventually go to David's apartment, which is really quite beautiful, and we will see some rooms in the apartment. Well, why does this happen? Well, because David has a brother named Billy. Notice he's not William. He's Billy. Notice he's not Bill. He's 
Billy, which seems sort of childish in a way for a grown man who's in his 40s. Uh, and, uh, well, the problem is that Billy is the black sheep of the family. He's been on drugs, he's an alcoholic, and he's whenever he shows up, it's trouble. Trouble indeed. And he shows up at his brother's office and he says, look, I have nowhere to go. I have cancer. You have to take me in. And the detail in Billy's character is really one that I think a lot of people, sadly enough, will identify with if they have black sheep brothers or, for that matter, sisters, because this Billy is always contentious, always saying, what, you can't give me another chance? What? You know, always criticizing and always putting uh, David, the successful man, on the defensive. And because David is a good guy, because he's a good guy and wants to do the right thing, he ultimately winds up taking in Billy, which turns out to be a lot of wrong things, especially involving this son, Jeremy, uh, who's home from college for the Christmas holidays. That's another reason why... Um, <clears throat> Another reason why uh, Billy is taken in, because it's Christmas and people get sentimental at that time of year. Well, needless to say, David is married to Molly, who, is, who does not have uh, feelings of brother-in-law love for uh, Billy. And she wants him out of there, no time flat. And so there's a lot of conflict here. And, you know, there's enough potential here for Billy to destroy everything that he touches. And he certainly does his best to do this. But in the end, will the good guy win out and will the bad guy suffer for everything that he's done in the past? You'll find out as time goes on. There are a few things in it that are a little hard to believe, I will admit, uh, one of which is the fact that uh, Billy gave um, Jeremy, the son, a, uh, a stuffed animal when they went to um, like a Six Flags place uh, one day. And ultimately... We find out that um, Jeremy has kept this thing, but he didn't know he had it. I found that a little hard to believe. But this is such a nitpick. I am so sorry even to bring it up. Um, wonderfully performed. Lee Turgeson plays Billy, and he really understands this rough-and-tumble, um, forthright, uh, I'm always right, I know what goes on, I have street smarts, you don't. Uh, and therefore, I am the smartest person in the room when he isn't remotely. Uh, tremendous performance. David, um, played by Kelly O'Coin, has to react a lot. So he doesn't get the chance to be as dynamic as Billy. But he does his part in showing us the conflict that goes through some man's head when he has a brother like this. Uh, this was a play that made me very happy that I'm an only child. And frankly, I have a lot of friends who have trouble with their brothers uh, and time immemorial have had trouble with their brothers. And uh, one of my dearest friends said, every time I get a phone call from him, I know it's going to be trouble. And I was certainly reminded of that in this play. Annie Parise is wonderful as Molly being tough as nails uh, has to be because David uh, is not going to take action and she's got to force him into it. And Alex Wolf, um, a young actor playing Jeremy, um, this is his first off-Broadway appearance. I don't know if he's appeared on Broadway. I, I assume he hasn't. A very nice debut. A very nice debut in trying to be nice to his uncle and yet knowing that his uncle has a million problems. Eventually he uh, confronts the uncle with uh, his past and uh, the uncle acts wounded and disappointed and, and, and Jeremy winds up apologizing. So a very good job by Donald Margulies in showing us 
the family dynamics and how difficult it is when you have a brother of this scope. But he's captured that guy perfectly, perfectly. So um, I hope the many Manhattan Theater Club shows when their way to Broadway. I think this one should, too. So um, I'm hoping that will happen, and I won't be surprised if it does. All right. Two very good reviews for Long Loss and Manhattan Theater Club. So, Peter... The uh, conspiracy theorists came out of the woodwork in the last couple of weeks. Where is Felicia? Uh-huh. I'm saying. Where is Felicia? And we're here to tell you where Peter was. You were up in the beautiful, beautiful northern country, the furthest north part of America. So tell us about your trip to Alaska. Yeah, yeah, that's where I was. I was literally in uh, the 49th state, uh, the last frontier state, at the last frontier theater conference in Valdez, Alaska for 27 years. This town of like 3,800 people um, have, have sponsored a contest for playwrights. And it's just an amazing experience. Uh, Dawson Moore is the gentleman who runs the contest, and he does a spectacular job of making everything happen. He and his staff read over 400 scripts and uh, selected about 45 of them. Most of them uh, were full lengths, but there were one acts. And so you'd see a one act at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, a full length at 11 o'clock. They provided a lunch for you. At 1.30, you would then go and hear lectures, uh, and 3 o'clock, there'd be uh, more plays. Sometimes there'd be plays after that, and sometimes um, before uh, that, too, um, they'd squeeze them in. Uh, I was there because I had written a play called The Whole World, and uh, I submitted it, and they accepted it, I'm happy to say, and um, it uh, was done in a reading. They were all uh, readings, and um, it went very well. Though I have to point out the big success of the festival the big success by far was a play called You, Me, and Adam Levine. And um, this was a uh, play that um, was written by Angel- Angelica Howland and Michelle Gardner. They collaborated on this, and it's, it's about uh, two women who are crazy for Adam Levine, uh, who uh, the singer from Maroon 5, and um, they they certainly would love to meet him. One would like to meet him far more than the other and will do anything, anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything to get to meet him. The other one's a little, uh, wait a minute, I don't think we should do this. But um, <laughs> what happens? Well, plenty of interesting stuff. So, um, so it's a terrific thing. Uh, I really had a wonderful time meeting a lot of wonderful people. Arlene Hutton, um, the last train to Nibrock playwright, was there. Timothy Daly, not the actor, not Diane Daly's brother, but an Australian playwright whose commentaries were magnificent beyond belief. Um, Luke Yankee was there. Um, He's the author of uh, Just Outside the Spotlight, um, growing up with Eileen Heckert. Uh, He had a play, which I did not see because my play was in rehearsal, so I was sorry to miss it. But as we all learned a long time ago, you can't see them all. Um, but a tremendous thing. This, it went so smoothly. I, if there were a problem, I didn't hear of it. Um, I'm sure I gained five pounds from the Oreo cookies that were out uh, in between <laughs> every show. Um, God love them for doing that. But um, as we all hopped up with our brother wizards, a good time was had by all. And I do urge anybody out there with a new play to uh, start looking around at the Last Frontier Theater Conference and see if you can go to the 28th one, because it really is an extraordinary experience, a week-long experience. And for that matter, at night, 
they don't do new plays. They do um, they bring in entertainment. So there was a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, remounting uh, of Popcorn Falls, the James Heinemann uh, play from last year off Broadway uh, that starred Tom Serrata and Adam Heller. Now Adam Heller. Uh, was busy uh, with the Flamingo Kid at Hartford, so he couldn't do it. So uh, James Heineman, um actually came in and uh, took his place. And there's something wonderful about Nathan doing his own work. It really is quite terrific when that happens. So uh, so that was um, impressive. Uh, uh, an actor named Cooper Bates performed his one-man show called Black when I was a boy. And in it, he admitted that when white schoolmates were harassing uh, him for not looking like them, he endured it while fully expecting that the slings and arrows of these outrageous bigots would end once he reached adulthood. Then the individuals he met would be more sensitive and mature. Yeah, right. Anyway, so that was very impressive as well. The local company did a doll's house too, so it was nice to see that again. So really, uh, quite an experience up there in Alaska. And um, I will admit, it takes forever to get there. I will admit, it took me forever to get back because I had long layovers. 25 hours it took me to get back. Not Not all flying, but I mean plenty of layovers. And yet worth every bit of it, all that uh, chaos and coming back. I still came back and couldn't get to sleep after 25 hours up, uh, more than that, 36 hours up. And I couldn't get to sleep because I was so excited by this festival. Uh, The comments were amazing from the adjudicators, though it was kind of funny. Uh, One of them was um, Arthur Jolly, who said, I hate plays where people meet for the first time. I hate plays that take place in psychiatrist's office. You, me, and Adam Levine had two people meeting for the first time in a psychiatrist's office. All right. So the 28th annual Valdez Last Frontier Theater Conference is tentatively tentatively scheduled for June 13th through the 20th of 2020. So, uh, And I'll have a link to their uh, information in the show notes so you can can check that out. I was going to ask you, Peter, but you've answered the question. There, There's a lot of uh, theater cruises, the Playbill Cruise and various other theater cruises that go up to uh, uh, Alaska this time of year. Uh, that wasn't one of them that you were on. So um, before we wrap up and get to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to uh, Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today so peter we have some uh, trivia to uh catch up on for tell us who has answered uh fastest and correctly over the last couple of weeks well on june 9th i asked uh, a fight director and star who once married and both represent on broadway at the moment who are they and what shows are they connected um in case you missed it it was jay stephen white who did the fight direction for burn this he was once married to All My Sons star Annette Benning from 1984 to 91. In 1992, she married somebody else. Tony Janicki was the only one to get it. So the next week, the question was, lyricists love cleverness, William Goldman wrote in his landmark book, The Seasons. Audiences don't care all that much about uppity rhyming with cup of tea. 
Ironically, one of the musicals of that 1967-68 season did indeed have a song in which uppity rhymed with cup of tea. What's the song and what's the show it came from? Well, in Darling of the Day, the musical that got Patricia Routledge a Tony, even though it only lasted a month, she sings in the song, A Gentleman's Gentleman, Don't Be So Uppity to the Man Who Serves Your Cup of Tea. Uh, Once again, Tony Janicki was the first to get it, followed by Brigadude, Donald Tessioni, Ingrid Gammerman, Robert Lobiondo, uh, Dennis Spiegel, and Bob Berger. Now, Reed Loveland and Jeff Hickman mentioned Consider Yourself. So did Michael Potentier, for that matter. Um, Well, yes, that does rhyme uppity and cuppity. Uh, However, that's a right pew, wrong church thing, because that was the 1962-63 season. So that was the problem there. So, all right, here we go with this week's question which you have two weeks to consider because next week we're on vacation. So uh, no excuse now. You have plenty of time to figure this one out. When the original cast album of this now famous and often revived, but not Tony-nominated musical, was released, its two stars were above the title. Some years later, the recording was reissued with a new cover. But then the two stars had been joined above the title by a third performer, even though he'd only been fifth billed on the original jacket. What's the show, and who are the three stars? Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. As Peter mentioned, we will not be here with you next week. Peter, Michael, and I are all out of town. <laughs> so uh, Matt Tamanini and Ashley Steves are going to take over and put together a show in this spot. It won't be a This Week on Broadway, but it'll be something else I'm sure very interesting. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. We'll see you in two weeks. I love Bye. To stay up way too late and me too. I love the rain on my skin when I'm sticky and hot. I love the smell of old books. A little weird, but why not? I love the two on my ankles, morning glories, the moon through the trees, and I love what? Did you know that in one of the uh, Eskimo languages, there are 32 names for love? That's a lot of loving. And uh, what about you? I love the sound of muddy waters rocking his guitar. Who? (laughs) And every piston, wheel, and spark plug of my car. Of course you do. I love an icy cold Coke. When I'm thirsty as hell I love the smell of cut grass (laughs) God, I can't stomach that smell I love the feel of a football I've caught me a few And I love What? Working here with you Working with you Can we?